The title of our message is Christ's love for me keeps me. Say that with me. Christ's love for me keeps me. Again, Christ's love for me keeps me. A group of children were once asked, what does love mean? Here's what some of them said. Tommy started off. Tommy, age six, says, well, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. And then there's Rebecca. Rebecca's eight. She said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over to paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. And then Billy, age four, said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. And Nika, age six, said, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with someone you hate. <laughs> That's good. And then Jessica, age eight, says, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. I think those kids are on to something, don't you? And today I want us to consider what the Apostle Paul has to say about this word Love, his use. Love is a dominant theme in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It shows up uh, over 30 times in both of those letters. Uh, for instance, in 1st Corinthians 13, we learned that love is patient and love is kind. It is not jealous, conceited, or proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. Love keeps no record of wrongs. That's why in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, Paul tells us we are to pursue love. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, Paul says, let all you do be done in love. Unless we confuse Christian love with spineless relativism, Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, that if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Those are strong words. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, 24, Paul closes the letter with these words, my love be with you all in Christ. Now, what are we to make of, of the love to which the apostle challenges us in these letters to the Corinthians? What, what, what is the stuff of this love? Where do we get it? Well, that's what I want us to consider this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you please meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want us to read verses 14 to 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. Give us the, the DNA of Christ-centered, cross-bearing love. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, 
That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. So did you catch the big idea here? Did you catch what Paul was saying? Here it is in a sentence. Jesus' love keeps me by his death for me so that I can live for him. Jesus' love keeps me by his death for me so that I can live for him. There's there's three sections to that big idea you heard. And let's just walk through each of these sections. Let's talk, let's talk first about the source of love, the origin of Christian love. And then that takes us to the sacrifice, the cost, the price of love. And then the outcome of love. Source, sacrifice, and outcome. And, and I feel like I just need to talk about why this is so important for us church family. I mean, think about it just a minute. Too often, our world wants to redefine a word that God has already defined. Uh, Michael Novak is an author. Uh, he writes about this in an essay titled, The Myth of Romantic Love. He wrote, we in the Western world have come to think that the central fire of human happiness is romantic love. Love forever and ever. A, a kind of love that locates couples walking hand in hand across the fields toward the sunlight. You know, a sort of a princess bride kind of uh, uh, fairy tale. Many people spend their whole lives looking for such love, wondering when they are first attracted to one another, Well, if, if that's what they are now feeling. And then Novak repeated this comment that his wife told him about a former suitor of hers. She said, my former suitor, he didn't love me. He loved loving me. That is, he loved being in love. He loved the feeling of loving. He loved always being caught up in the longing. And church, what I want to say is that that gospel love is so much more. Gospel love is deeper and richer and more enduring. And it begins with the source. 
the source of love. Do you see it there? Do you see the source? It's verse 14. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Now, English teachers, that is what you would call the, the, sub, the subjective possessive. That's what that's called. That is to say, when Paul speaks of the love of Christ, he's not talking about his love for Christ. He's not saying it's my love for Christ that controls me. No, he's not saying that. He's talking about Christ's love for him. Christ is the subject of love in that verse. It's Jesus' love. Jesus' self-giving, self-sacrificial, other-oriented love is what's flowing into Paul's soul energizing him to life and ministry. So much so is that when the apostle says in Colossians 1.29, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works through me, that's Jesus' love for him. Furthermore, it's a love that controls Paul. Literally, literally, it's a love that holds Paul together. Keeps Paul together. Paul says the source of my love for life and ministry is Christ's love. His love keeps me. It keeps me sane. Keeps me encouraged. It's a love that keeps me from falling apart. It's a love that keeps me from scattering and shattering and breaking into a million irreparable pieces. What is keeping you today? What's keeping you today? What's holding you together in these strange, strained times? Paul says, it's Christ's love for me. And it's a love that did exercise control in its keeping. It's a love that kept Paul focused. And it's a love that moved Paul into different spaces. Spaces he would otherwise not go. So it's a love that both boxes Paul in and yet frees Paul up. It's a love that hems Paul and expands Paul. Paul's a man under orders. And he no longer sets his own agenda. He does not belong to himself. He belongs to his king. And of course the good news is that that this keeping, controlling, constraining love is not just for Paul, it's for us. And that's what differentiates Christ's love from human love. You see, when, when humans say, I love you, yes, English teachers, it's a grammatically complete sentence, but it is a theologically incomplete sentence. You say, Randy, you're talking like a pastor. I am a pastor. See, when I, when, when I say I love you as a human, there, there's an unspoken because, until, or if implied. I, lo I love you because you make me happy. I love you because you please me. I love you until you disappoint me. I love you if you love me. We love because we find in the beloved something lovable. That's human love. But Jesus' love is grammatically and theologically complete. Because when Jesus says, I love you, I love you, period. It's complete. He loves first without 
finding anything worthy of love in us. He does not seek the lovable, the likable, or the one who will love him back. Even before he found you, he created you. And from the very foundation of the world, he loved you. In fact, his love made you and formed you in your mother's womb. And in Christ, he has recreated you. And in Christ, he continues to love you even when you are mean and unmerciful. Our culture likes to say love is love. Implying that we just get to define love however we want. But that, that's not found in the scriptures. What's found in the scriptures is God's love. And God loves you not because love is love, but because God is love. He does what he is. And that's what keeps Paul Guys often look for a wife who is attractive and appealing in many ways. One who will love them back. Not God. No. According to Ezekiel 16. God found an an, an unwashed, deformed, diseased prostitute whose life was littered with impurity and infidelity. In every manner of wickedness. And God made her his bride. And washed her clean of filth and forgave her past and clothed her in his robe of righteousness and pronounced her beautiful. And who was this bride? We are that bride. His love has transformed the beloved into something truly lovely. And God is the only one who can say, I love you, period. And he speaks truth, and his truth is the last word the love of christ controls us that's the source well how does this happen how do, how does this love change us well that takes us to the sacrifice look at back at the text and 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That's how. Christ's death was the death of all in the sense that they should have died. The penalty of their sins was borne by him. He died in our place. So God sent his son to put on human flesh to deal with sin and restore sinners. All of us were condemned because of sin and Christ came and identified with all of us and died on the cross. Therefore, all all who should have died, died in Christ and therefore Christ died as our substitute, as our proxy. So we did not elect Christ to die for us. God did. And Christ's submission to his Father's will was the supreme act of self-giving love. That's why Paul would say in verse 21, For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, that is God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the essence of sin is substitution. Whenever I sin, I am substituting myself For a seat exclusively for God. I'm saying, God, move over on your throne. I can take it from here. But the essence of salvation is also substitution. 
where Christ says, I will take your seat, Randy, the seat of punishment for you, so that you do not have to. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, the Bible teachers call this a double imputation. Imputation. That a double transfer takes place. First, Jesus takes on my sin. That's the first transfer. But then the second transfer is that I assume his righteousness. He takes my failure, I receive his glory. He takes my tragedy, I receive his victory. He takes my F and I take his A+. You say, that's not fair. Of course it's not fair. It's grace. Grace is beyond fair. Uh, Church, let me put it this way. There's a lot of talk these days about self-care. Um, and yes, by all means, take your walks, take your day off, take your nap, disengage from social media, pick up a book, turn off your cell phone, go see someone in person. Acts of self-care sustain us in these trying times. And at the same time, if we are not careful These acts of self-care to prevent burnout can yet become another list of laws that we are unable to keep. So so self-care can unwittingly become another burdensome corporate strategic plan. Burned out from work? Well, work harder to take care of yourself, you see. I have good news for us. One has died for all. The the gospel is not self-care. The gospel is care. Period. The gospel is healing. The gospel is restoration. The gospel is forgiveness. The gospel is freedom. The gospel is life. The gospel is hope. We, we, We all have trouble understanding our need for it, asking for it, and receiving it. As creatures, we cannot care for ourselves. What we need is an outside intervention. We need someone to come in from the outside, from heaven, to meet us in our helplessness so that we can possess new life in Christ. Church, family, burnt out candles cannot relight themselves. But we serve a king who is light. And he takes smoldering wicks and he will never snuff them out. He will recreate us and renew us so that the light that shines on the hill, this city on a hill, cannot be hidden. People see this light and give glory to the Father. The source of this love is Jesus. The sacrifice of love is his all-sufficient death on the cross. And the outcome is, is this, this, this life lived for him. For him. Jesus' love keeps me 
by his death for me so that I can live for him. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Don't read that verse too quickly. Because embedded in this verse is, is a diagnostic that applies to every person who has ever lived. Paul argues that the sacrifice of Jesus was necessary because the DNA of sin is living for self. Sin causes me to ignore God's existence and his rightful claim on every area of my life. Sin causes me to make my life all about me. Sin causes the borders of my concerns to go no further than the borders of me. Sin causes me to shrink my vision to the myopia of my wants, my needs, and my feelings in ways that really do shape my living. Sin makes it all about me. The desires of my heart are consumed by my ease, my comfort, my pleasure, my success. I want what I want when I want it. And if I don't get it, you will feel my wrath. Think about the last time you were upset. Whose laws were really broken? Were you upset because God's kingdom was violated or was it your kingdom? This side of heaven, there's a constant war being fought in all of our hearts between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. And every battle that you have with other people is the result of that deeper war. And when you are losing this war, you live for yourself. And invariably, it ends in conflict with others. But see, this is why Christ died. He died to destroy your puny kingdom of one. And so when Paul says in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. This is the outcome that God sent Jesus to rescue me from me. And so for Paul, conversion meant a transfer of allegiances from a dying kingdom to an eternal kingdom. For Paul, it meant the transfer from one dominion to another, from law to grace, from sin to righteousness, from death to life, from the flesh to the spirit, or in verse 15, from self to God. And now, because of Jesus, we can say with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. And now the motivation for all of life is to please the king who has proprietary rights over the lives of all of his servants. And whether believers live or die, they do so as servants who are under the property of the king. And that's why Paul says in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. So, so there's the identity question, who am I? I am a representative of Jesus. I never speak a word on my own behalf. I never live my life on my own behalf. It is all for him. And that is the outcome of love. And when 
The people of this world see the city of God on this hill with their lives lit with the light of Christ. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? That they may, that they may glorify your Father in heaven. So you see, the terminus of Christian love is not me. The terminus of Christian love, the outcome, the end, the goal of Christian love is not is not me. It is a life then that reflects into glory to God. That people see my life and Christ's love in and through my life. And say, who is this God? I must know him. I must know him. That, beloved, is life that is truly life. Do you hear me? Jesus' love keeps me by his death. For me, so that I can live for him. He was a hospice chaplain uh, named Matt, and he worked with a spiritual care staff of about a half a dozen chaplains, spread out doing home care throughout the Las Vegas Valley. And it was Friday. And in addition to seeing the patients uh, on his caseload, he was assigned a new patient for another chaplain who was out of town for the week. And so he was on his way to see this patient. Uh, and, and, oh, and Matt was also a part-time pastor at a church. And, and, and also his wife was in ministry. And they had children. And it was busy. And it's crunch time. And time is a thin and precious resource when you deal with end-of-life care. So Matt is on his way in his car to see this new patient. When his phone rings, it was a request for a chaplain to do a memorial service. Matt said, no problem. When is the service? And the voice on the other end of the line said, tonight at 6. And no other chaplain was available. So Matt had to be on the other side of town to do a funeral for someone he had never met with no time to prepare. And here's what he said. He said, my heart raced and my spirit sank. Now looking at an unplanned 12-hour day, I was in anguish about getting the energy to write a sermon that night. Throughout that day, my stress was at high pitch. My mind kept churning. I couldn't focus. And then I met him. I met this patient. He lived in an apartment with a caretaker. He had been a pastor. He was suffering from brain cancer. He talked very slowly and deliberately. The caretaker would often finish his sentences and ideas. Come to find out, we were from the same hometown, Matt says, Cleveland. So we commiserated about the Browns and talked about landmarks and traded some notes about ministry. Matt says that the slower conversation about shared places and interests just gave him peace in an otherwise chaotic day. And Matt says, before I left, you know, I asked this you know, former pastor, I said, what, how can I pray for you? 
He looked at me for a bit, and then he formed the words perfectly. He said, I still want to serve him. Matt said, I just burst into tears. Yeah, I had forgotten that I worked for Christ. Here I was all day feeling tired and stressed out and sorry for myself. My, my stress had made it all about me. And look at this man of God dying who would gladly trade places with me. And then, and then the pastor just grabbed my face and slowly and deliberately he prayed for me and he blessed me. And there at that bedside, I had, I had a collapse that I absolutely needed. And as I said goodbye, I, I thanked him. Because at that holy moment, we were more than just two pastors. We were two sinners, broken in different ways, crushed by our own burdens, but both just stopping at the foot of the cross. And I realized that day that the very moment I shared with him was the answer to his prayer. In his final days on earth, he still got to serve Jesus. He picked up the pieces of my calling and he put them back at the feet of the king where they belong. I can't do it alone. I can't. But there is one who can. There is one who is more worthy than me, who came to me to bear the burden for me so that I could live for him. And that church family is love from on high. Love from above. Love from the throne of the king. And, and it all came from one sentence spoken by a pastor who invited Christ to care. That clergy or not, none of us are masters. We're only servants of what we've been given. And we don't live by the bread of our work alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are not enough, but his burden is easy and his yoke is light. And I tell you, it is difficult to burn out when your life is lit by the light of the world. And best of all, I still want to serve him too. Amen.